It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams. And I gotta say, our guest that I'm bringing to the front of the class, first of all, 19-year-old L. Joy Williams right now is like so geeking out and having the time of her life that she gets to have solo time with Dr. Ron Daniels, veteran social and political activist. He served as the first African-American executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. He is an essayist, a commentator. He's the founder and president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, which is a progressive African-centered action-oriented resource center and is also the administrator for the National African-American Reparations Commission. And I couldn't think of anybody better. In fact, I said, I can't have the conversation about reparations until I am have the privilege of having Dr. Ron Daniels at the front of the class. Welcome, Dr. Daniels. Well, it's great to be at the front of the class and with your joy and exuberance. I mean, I'm uplifted. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I love it. And by the way, congratulate you. I congratulate you on focusing on civics because back in the day, we used to have classes in civics in school. So congratulations, Joy, for having uh, this great uh, opportunity to be in front of the class. So Dr. Daniels, I'm going to start where we have all of our guests start. If you can tell us the story of your first civic action. You know, I always, it's interesting because, you know, I always, I also do a a radio talk, I mean, a a radio uh, show, and I've done this. And when I I always start the same way, I want to know how do people get involved and whatever. So I'm going to give you two. One, uh, I became active when I was relatively young, 14, 15 years old, or in in that range in Youngstown, Ohio. I joined the NAACP, NAACP Youth Chapter in Youngstown, Ohio. There was a roller rink, and I'm sure this occurred up south a lot of places, where Black people could not skate the same night as white folks. There was a Black night at Max Roller Skating Rink. So the first act that I remember is actually helping to lead a picket line at Max Roller Skating Rink to demand that there be an end to uh, Black nights and that Black people be able to be able to actually uh, roller skate on any other night they they could. So we had a we had actions against Black Knight at Max Roller Skating Wing. But the other memorable civic engagement I had as a result of being a part of the NAACP, I had the honor and privilege of actually being at the March on Washington in 1963. And it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, my goodness. That is definitely, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, we also had this connection. My mom grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. And so, you know, being a, a Gen Xer and she, you know, most of my memory of Youngstown, Ohio, because I, I then grew up in New York City, is why we got to go to that depressing town. <laughs> you know, like, you know and, and my mother, you know, who her parents also, right, like, you know, hearing from my grandmother talking about how, you know, lively the town used to be, right, because there were jobs, there was, you know, manufacturing, and so and so there was a real large bustling Black community there, middle class community there, because there was work, there was, you know, things to be, but it was also very segregated and racist, right? Oh, yes, all right. <laughs> so to hear, I'm always, you know, want to hear more stories of folks who are from Youngstown, not just passing through just to hear that story of where my mom grew up. My mom is now, she's 20, at exactly 20 years, I mean, so she's 63. And, you know, of her memory and my grandmother's memory of that town. Well, Youngstown is, uh, in fact, my civic engagement for me is a tale of two cities. It is a tale of Youngstown, Ohio, which is at that point the fourth largest steel product- producing uh, center in the United States of America, which means there were good paying jobs though Black folks in Youngstown, which is, a lot, which is something that a lot of people don't understand in terms of what 
de facto segregation meant. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could be up south, and there was no, there were no, no segregation laws on the books, but black workers could not go beyond a certain pay grade in the steel mills. They had, they always worked the the the, the labor game, the dirtiest, filthiest work. But yet, in compared to being on a sharecropper in the South, that was a hell of a good wage. Mm -hmm. And so people could begin to live uh, decently. The other part of it was uh, in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. And so August Wilson's Pittsburgh was the place that I went when my mother and father, unfortunately, were divorced or separated and eventually divorced when I was nine years old. And so I grew up, uh, you know, having to work with my mother, who was uh, an, an incredibly uh, tenacious woman, as black men women are very often, and having to raise kids on our own and being a little too proud to ask for more and whatever uh, in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. But then it was there that really my commitment to social justice, I would not have understood it then, but the conditions that we lived in were such that you know, I said, we shouldn't have to live like this. And so I had a, a commitment to begin to, to become engaged. And uh, we went back to Youngstown. And then that's when I became <clears throat> very much uh, engaged by putting together a civic, uh, a civic uh, organization. People began to look at the work I was doing. I was recruited into the NAACP. And actually, not only became a part of the, uh, the Youngstown chapter, I went on to do, uh, found the, the college chapter at Youngstown State University. And I went on from there to um, be state president. And I eventually became president of the NAACP for the entire region three. Mm -hmm. And in Youngstown, speaking of experiences, um, I don't know when your mother left Youngstown, but I was one of the, the people back in the day when speaking of civic engagement and having to expand our opportunities Back in the day, we didn't have black folks on television. I mean, it was rare to see black people, but there was a push on, you know, to use uh, the fairness doctrine, which is now perhaps obsolete, to push to get black people on television, on radio, whatever. And so in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, you, you know, in the different television stations, they said, well, we, don't, we can't find anybody. We don't have an experience, you know, that uh, riff. And uh, there was a black broadcasting coalition, a woman named Margaret Linton, I forget the, uh, uh, a brother named uh, Brother Mosley, they put together this coalition and they were hammering on the door of the ABC affiliate, the NBC affiliate, and the CBS affiliate. And it happened to be that on, this, and the, y, on the WYTV, the, AB, the ABC affiliate, that we were sitting around with a Howard Duncan, I should never forget his name, with a group of activists and organizers from the community and Howard Dunson said, well, you know, if we, I, I mean, I'd be willing to do it. As, we just don't have anybody. And he went on to say, well, is anybody here willing to try it? And I said, yes, I'm willing to try it. And so that experience led to 18 years on television in Youngstown, Ohio. So I would not be surprised, but that your mother at some point did not see Ron Daniels on the Ron Daniels stove. It was, uh, it was called... Uh, Perspectives in Black, and eventually it was called Open Forum, a whole series of, of, of iterations of it, which became one of the most influential um, talk shows. In fact, I kind of pioneered this whole idea of just doing commentary and taking questions before C-SPAN did it. So uh, that's a part of the roots that I, I bring. And of course, I carried that experience on with me later on and continued to do radio and, and, and television and whatever as a part of my portfolio of, of experiences. Wow. I am definitely going to, so she listens to the show, so she's going to hear this <laughs> on Sunday, but I'm definitely going to query and ask her if she remembers because she often, you know, as you know, listen, as older people do, and they do like random storytelling and you're just like, mom, I just wanted to know if I <laughs> one thing and then we'll be off on a whole nother <laughs> yeah, but 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 um i forget you know I, I actually recently did a show with a sister named betty dobson she has an organization called cmotep which is very active here in the city of new york but she is from what was called then the sharon line or mcguffey heights in youngstown mm. we didn't know each other at that time she came to when i moved to new york we connected she moved back to create a chapter of cmotep there <clears throat> 
And we recently did a kind of reflections on Youngstown. And so I think it may have been cool in the gang, you know, kind of came out of Youngstown. There were boxers who came out of Youngstown. Simeon Booker, who was the, the editor, uh, it may have been called the city editor or whatever, for Jet Magazine is right out of Youngstown, Ohio. Wow. As is Nathaniel Jones, who was one of the earliest appointments to the, to the, the um, district court. He eventually became a circuit court judge. So don't be Tom Plop. Youngstown, we got a whole lot to be proud of in terms of Youngstown, Ohio. Well, yeah, I see. I definitely see. And as your tale of two cities, my mom is Youngstown, Ohio and Brooklyn, New York, which is, you know, where I end up the product. And now you've given me more reason why I'm still going to hold on. I still, I own the, the, the property was, you know, then disheritated to me. So I still own property in Ohio where my mother grew up and everything. So I, every time, every now and then they ask me to, you know, sell it back and I'm like, nah, hold on to it. Hold on to it. It it may revive, it may revive, it may revive. But um really in terms of civic engagement, including the question of reparations, it's really a story that goes back to Youngstown, Ohio, because I built, helped to build one of the most formidable organizations that was dealing with civic engagement and Pan-Africanism. And at that stage even black nationalism, because once I went away to school and came back, I had a kind of conversion experience at the height of the blossoming of Black consciousness and Black is beautiful and, and all of that. We built something called an organization called Freedom Incorporated, which was one of the most formidable organizations in the country. We brought to Youngstown, Ohio, uh, people like Sonia Sanchez and Hakeem Adabudi and Dr. Mylana Karinga, and even that, beyond that, the, the now deceased foreign minister, of Namibia, Theora Mbiriot, right to Youngstown, Ohio. Diplomats, all kinds of people came to Youngstown, Ohio. And out of that experience, as I actually went off to school, is when I encountered Queen Mother Audley Moore. And Queen Mother Moore is one of the legendary figures in the, in the um, reparations movement. And as I went off to the Graduate School of Public Affairs in Albany, New York, uh, with a conviction that I had been involved with the NAACP, I had been involved in all these organizations, and because I was so active, my grades suffered because I was you know, trying to do all this stuff. And so I was fortunate enough to go off to Albany, New York to go to school, and I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna behave myself, I'm gonna be a good, we would say Negro in those days, a good colored person, <laughs> and I'm gonna get my degree, and I'm just gonna be a good, successful black person, right? But unfortunately, or no, fortunately, actually, I encountered some people up in Albany, New York, who, including one of my professors who challenged me about the idea of black power, and I I ran into some construction workers who were fighting in the construction industry, and the next thing you know, that itch took over, and I was swept up into getting involved, involved in the movement and using my experiences that I had learned in the NAACP, which was a, a training ground under great leaders in Youngstown, Ohio. So I became involved, but in so doing, I actually had an opportunity to meet a number of the people who were at the forefront of black power, who, had, who, had, who were with SNCC and whatever, and then other people who were working with them. And in that regard, I ran into and had a chance to to meet Queen Mother Moore and actually be mentored by me, by Queen Mother Moore. She actually adopted me as one of her sons. And I always tell people that she said that her mission in life, among others, was to operate on constipated minds. Because her, her theory was, taking off of Carter G. Woodson's miseducation of the Negroes, that Black people obviously had constipated minds because we were miseducated. And of course, I had a constipated mind. She operated on my mind and thank God that she was able to like liberate me because I didn't even know what reparations was. I had no idea about reparations, but it was Queen Mother Moore who was teaching us, you must get your reparations. You must get your reparations, get your reparations. She taught us about reparations. She taught us about identity. You're not Negroes. You're not colored. You're not only that black. She would say, where's black land? See, everybody else has got the Italians come is, is Italian because they come from Italy. 
Polish people are Polish because they come from Poland, you know, and, and she would go on, German people are German because they come from Germany. She said, where is Negro land? Where is black land? And she would she never, she said, no, you're African. You're, you're African people. That's who you are. You, 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 you are not a color. So all of those experiences were incredibly important in shaping an aspect of the work that I've been doing for almost all of my life, and that is focusing on reparations. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I will let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I, I know you're being succinct in that detail of your education and your upbringing, but it brings me to the question at hand. You know, I remember I went to Hofstra and I remember in, encountering, I had always known the, the Pan-African family I was raised in, my father's side of family who's from the South, always had this all in faith, right? So pastors, preachers, gospel singers, all in my family. And I always knew the story of Jesus as a social justice advocate. Right. I always knew him in that context until I got to college. I didn't realize that everybody else didn't learn about him in that way either. <laughs> you know, I'd always had this African center and then but encountered and as a lot of people, when you get to college and you're with other people, it sort of expands and grows. And, you you know, you go through your, you know, black power, you know, uh, phase. Mine hasn't left. It's just grown up a little bit. And, you know, I remember encountering the issue of reparations and it was that itself had never been presented to me, even having that justice advocate center, that faith center, that African center, it was not something that was presented to me as a, you know, a young person, but it was immediately like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Right. It, it makes sense. And we have been brought up in a society where we also learn that other people have also received it because of wrongs. And I want to start you talking about Queen Mother Moore talking about the constipated mind. I think she's is saying speak to the person listening who has not encountered that thought process before and it is foreign to them or they have been conditioned and told that you know it happened long ago it's not you know it's not something real you know what is why should you have the center of it is owed to people of african descent well, I think um, it, it, it is fundamentally uh, a part of a people's sense of their own self-esteem. It is a part of people's own sense of, of, of dignity, a sense of self-respect. In one way, you could argue that if we never, ever achieved reparations, the failure to fight for it is in and of itself uh, an indication of the kind of trauma and the kind of damage that has been done uh, to and harm to people of African descent, descent coming out of uh, the Holocaust of enslavement. The greatest uh, enslavement, the greatest Holocaust in human history is the, the, the rape and pillage and kidnapping of millions upon millions of Africans out of the African continent. Uh, but in the process of doing so, there was a, particularly in North America, a conscious effort to de-Africanize us, to take away our memory, to take away our sense of pride in our color, pride in our culture, pride in our heritage. So we've had to constantly be fighting within these United States of America to try to find out who we are, to, to re-identify ourselves. This was another thing that Queen Mother Moore always talked about. She said, you're not no Negro. And she would say, you know, knee, the knee, uh, if you go back to the Latin and 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 she would say in the Spanish, she said that knee is no. It means no, not never. And she said you can almost say no, not never shall we grow. It's what what Negro means in terms of the word black. She said you don't want to use that word. So the the definition of reparation simply is that a people who are harmed uh, by another people, an institution, or a nation in terms of the depravity of life, an assault on 
religion, a result on culture, uh, and indeed, in fact, um, uh, in those, those particular areas are entitled to repair. Um, that's sort of the basic uh, meaning of reparation. It means to repair and is to repair the injuries that have occurred as a result of uh, the, the physical, spiritual, mental, cultural destruction of a people. You add to the African experience the, the, the tremendous extraction of wealth. This nation would not have been, would not have grown as rapidly as it did in terms of the commercial and industrial revolution had it not been for the extraction of, 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 of generations of free labor coming from, uh, from African people. In fact, in the global context, as Walter Rodney documents in the classic work on this issue, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, Barclays Bank, Lloyd's of London, these institutions were built off of the free labor. And by the way, the point is uh, th that a lot of people have to deal with it. It doesn't really matter whether you were directly involved in the slave trade or not. Many people benefited from it because there were industries, all, and I mean, tremendous numbers of industries that developed as a result of, of the slave trade, which people benefited from. So that becomes the fundamental definition is repair for the, the Holocaust of enslavement, but it also goes much further than that. And, and this is one of the things that we're building out and having people to understand today. Because I would tend to say right now, we're at the point where there's a tremendous amount of consciousness about reparations, but there's also some misunderstanding about it. So it is not just for enslavement. It is for all of the derivative legacies of enslavement. That is to say, if you look back, um, Claude Anderson documents in his book, uh, Black Labor, White Wealth, Black Labor, White Wealth, that the Homestead Act provided 160 acres to folks who would just claim it and, and, and would, would actually invest in the land. Well, of course, we never got our 40 acres in a mule, which was actually promised by Field, uh, Field General, I mean, General Sherman, uh, land that would have been provided for us, uh, formerly enslaved African people from all the way from South Carolina, all the way to Florida. Though it must be said that that concept was actually presented. A lot of people don't know, that, know this because we don't get this in our history lesson either. It was actually presented to the Congress of the United States. It actually passed the Congress of the United States. It was vetoed by uh, President uh, Andrew Johnson. And it's the other thing that people need to know in terms of reparations, there were people in the, the border states, Maryland, Arkansas, some of those, well, maybe not Arkansas, but Maryland, there were states in which people who had slaves but emancipated them were actually, they were compensated because they did not side with the Confederacy. They remained neutral. But continuing the story, we didn't get the land. We didn't get that 160 acres. White folks got it. We didn't get it. We had folks who fought in every war in this country, but particularly in the Second World War, we fought in the war. You know, somebody like Megger Evers, who got shot, gunned down, and killed in, his, killed in 1963 in Jackson, Mississippi, he was a veteran. He never got people in, like him, more metaphorically speaking, never got the GI Bill, the benefits that white vet veterans got. FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, where which built the suburbs, this whole notion of the American dream and, and a house and the mortgage and the equity in the house is what constitutes a, a, a part of the def a fundamental definition of wealth, the equity. Well, white folks got that, we didn't. Redlining, disinvestment through uh, and destruction of black communities through what we call the Negro removal of the 20th century, which was urban renewal and the war on drugs. All of these areas of injury and harm warrant repair. And indeed, as you cited before quickly, yeah, the Jews in Nazi Germany are the classic, most memorable case where some 6 million Jews were mechanically liquidated one of the most horrific uh, sinister plots uh, in human history. They, they are, many of their descendants are still receiving uh, reparations. And there was another category of some 6 million others who were also uh, in those concentration camps and those death camps in, in Germany. The, the Aleuts and Eskimos in, in, in Canada have received some compensation. In fact, there's just recently another um, allocation on the part of the Canadian government. Uh, finally, uh, the um, Aborigines in Australia have finally gotten a multi-billion dollar settlement 
So this is not foreign. The issue is, like the staple, sing staple singers were saying, when will we get paid for the work that we've already done? Yeah. So thank you for that, because I think it's really important to set the stage. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I've often talked about whether in discussions about reparations or in panels, using NARC's 10 points in terms of reparation and also using the UN definition, talking about the acknowledgement, right? There's the acknowledgement, there is the apology, uh, yes. there is the, you know, the uncovering, right? And right. the truth telling that needs to happen in the process, right? There is also as you mentioned, not just enslavement, but also the derivative, as you mentioned, because there's the legacy of Jim Crow. There's the, you know, all of in reading and we on the show talk about different books and talk about housing, talk about redlining, all different things where you can see how there are many different actors who are responsible and play a part in reparations, that it's not simply or not, not, not simply, but not just the U.S. government, right, which has a plan, but there are private institutions, there are towns and cities and states, <laughs> like, states yeah, and then also internationally, right? Yeah. And so that there isn't this one check, one, you know, thing of one entity that needs to arrive, but that it is the, the calling for reposition, reparations is this collective up and coming that everybody has to participate in. And we're seeing some of it, some college universities here and there, you know, individual institutions. But can you talk a bit about the, you know, that it isn't simply just one entity. It is that entirety. Well, and that's very important because, um, and we're making, by the way, what, you're, what the audience should understand is we're making extraordinary progress. More progress, Queen Mother Moore, uh, John Conyers, Callie House, these are names of people who played significant roles in the struggle historically, uh, are, are looking down and they're smiling because we are, we are validating and, and, and in some ways we're vindicating their teaching, but also the struggle that they invested in helping to move the multi-generational struggle for reparations um, uh, forward. So, and, and, and I would say one of the most important areas actually is around municipal and state reparations, because there's this misunderstanding that even on the area of the, 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 the question of enslavement, that it was a Southern phenomenon. But in actuality, in the state of New Jersey, where people are pushing for a reparations task force to be formulated, and they're actually having to fight with progressives and whatever around the word, and they have a campaign saying, say the word. That's right, say the word reparations. We're not going to change it. We're not going to make it more palatable because the process of enslaving us and the damages thereafter were not palatable. But you had states like, like um, New Jersey, which I was shocked to find out because I would have thought maybe it was New York or Massachusetts, but New Jersey was, one, was the largest slave holding state of any, New Jersey. In the North, that is to say. And then we know in New York, Black Wall Street was, I mean, Wall Street was built by slave labor. In fact, the Washington Post recently uh, re released a study that shows something like 1,700 members of the Congress of the United States actually owned slaves. And many of them were up North, or we call it up South, Illinois, Indiana, places like that, that you would never have thought about it. But it's even, but it's, but it's, but it's deeper than that, because it is really up north where you encounter a de facto segregation that also contained our people, had our people not move forward in the ways that they ought to. And Evanston, Illinois, is a classic example. It is a classic example because we have worked with the city of Evanston. By we, I mean the National African American Reparations Commission with the uh, the brilliant leadership of Robin Ruth Simmons, very courageous, visionary sister, who understood that you couldn't deal with eradicating the wealth gap unless you dealt with the issue of reparations. 
she needed some help and she was kind enough and humble enough to come and say, let's figure this out. And we worked with her to deal with it. And we helped to create a model uh, in Evanston. But Evanston initially is based on redlining. It is based on redlining. It is based on documented evidence showing where, and by the way, Evanston is where Northwestern is. This is supposed to be a bastion of liberal progressivism and so forth. But among these folks, you could see the actual records of them saying, we want to move black people from this neighborhood on the lakefront to somewhere else. And, it's, and so those folks are the ones who are now through the Evanston Reparations Initiative who are now receiving, it is small, but nonetheless, it is real, $25,000 allotments, vouchers that they can use to either uh, uh, do home improvement, they can use it for a down payment on a mortgage uh, and various other ways to increase the wealth of their property. And, and so that is an illustration that it's not just about enslavement, but other forms, but it's also the roles that states, uh, cities have played. And what we're finding is all across the country, Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, 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 Providence, Rhode Island, Boston, Detroit, San Francisco, I mean, we can't even count the cities now that are coming on board. And by the way, this is a good thing because what it is doing is educating our people and educating the entire society about the depth of systemic structural institutional racism as a disease and infection in the American system. And it's being cleansed by this reparations movement that is, that is alive and thriving and, and is, 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 is demanding that America finally do what Martin Luther King said on that day in 1963, that part of the speech that nobody wants to talk about. And I call it the bounce check part of the speech where he talked about, and I was there to witness it when he said, uh, we come today with a promissory note that is supposed to guarantee, you know, the, 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 the riches and the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in terms of housing, jobs, econo economic development, and so forth. But it keeps coming back marked insufficient funds. We are on the verge of collecting finally and making that promissory note a reality because as you said before, it is cities, but it's also colleges and universities. I mean, colleges and universities, and by the way, Amherst is another city that also uh, is taking on reparations and colleges and universities like Amherst and um, uh, uh, Georgetown University has already engaged in a process where the Jesuits actually use the, the, the profits uh, from selling enslaved Africans to rescue that institution. But for that sale, you would not have this institution today. People are looking at that University of Chicago, Brown University, students are on the move, checking it out. Families, uh, institutions, banking institutions and so forth. So this is a thoroughgoing, penetrating cleansing that is underway. Uh, and it is one of the most remarkable moments in the history of these United States, certainly in terms, and it's interesting because it is black folk and there are allies. There always have been some allies, but it is black folks who are leading the people who were rejected, the people who, who were enslaved, who are liberating the country from its own sins. And we say there are at least two of those original sins is of course the dispossession of native people. We should never ever forget that but also the enslavement of Africans and all of the derivative harms that have been inflicted thereof. And let me just say, at this moment, we are on the verge of doing something that I never really thought I would see in my lifetime. And that is education is very important. And because of the work of our legacy organization in COBRA some 30 something years ago, connecting with one of the greatest progressive legislators in the history of this country, country, now deceased, our ancestor, the Honorable John Conyers. John Conyers, at the behest of a brother, because we always got to remember the names of those who are not so famous, Reparations Ray Jenkins. Uh, he kept knocking on the door. John Conyers, we need to talk about our reparations. Why come you don't take some charge here and go down there and, and sponsor a bill? And, and you know, Conyers was open to the idea anyway, but at a certain point, he met with leaders of Encobra and he said, yes, let's do this. And so he introduced, coming on the heels, you already referenced this, the 1988 Civil, 1988 Civil Liberties Act, which awarded 
to each uh, descendant of the, again, one of the terrible chapters in American history under a liberal president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the internment and concentration camps of Japanese Americans, they received each of them 20 to $25,000 each, a, a multi-billion dollar settlement, which was not sufficient because no amount of cash, no amount of resources can ever repay people for this kind of horrific experience. But it at least is a gesture. It is at least an acknowledgement. It is an apology. It is a way of beginning the healing uh, uh, process. Kanye said, let us emulate that process. And in COBRA, uh, a very, very strong stout organization that wasn't interested in a study bill, they knew we already knew, we already knew what the information was, but at least they, as, as an organizing tool said, this bill, which became known as HR 40, was a study bill. <clears throat> and it was used primarily for educational purposes because you struck on something earlier the problem we faced was not only convincing white folks, it was persuading ourselves, number one, in, in what reparations was and, and are, but secondly, whether we could even achieve it or not. So even if you believe in it, some people, oh, why are we wasting our time on it? We got contemporary things. We need to be working on this. But so this was a stroke of genius that we used that study bill as an organizing tool and Congress, Congressman John Conyers introduced it for, for 1989. Every year he introduced that bill. But in 2015, uh, the National African American Reparations Commission, along with NCOBRA and a, a task force that also included the Movement for Black Lives, approached Congressman Conyers and said, Congressman, that bill has run its course. There's been study after study after study, even after the studies that have been done. We've been studied up enough let's change this from a study bill to a remedy bill. He did not hesitate. And so the bill was rewritten. Cam Howard of the uh, of Incoba was one of the key architects of working with uh, Keenan Keller and others to redraft the, the, the language of HR 40. HR 40 now reads study yes. It is a bill that will establish a commission to study, but the key words is and develop reparations proposals for African-Americans. So it's no longer a study bill. It is now also a remedy bill. That bill, by comparison, the original bill never got more than about 50 co-sponsors. Not even every member of the Congressional Black Caucus was on board. And we didn't really sort of worry about it so much because organ we used it, cities endorsed HR 40s, NAACP, the Urban League. We built out a broad base of educational support. And there were other forces that contributed to it as well. It was not just that. Tanahasi Coates' brilliant article uh, the case for reparations in the Atlantic. All of these, you know, played a role. But as we sit today, it takes 218 votes in the House of Representatives to pass a, a, a bill. We have, with those who are co-sponsors and those who are yes votes, if it comes to a floor or when it comes to the floor, at 216. And we know we can get the other two. We can get the other two. This is a remarkable achievement in terms of the forward thrust of the reparations movement in this country and even beyond. In fact, it's giving Evanston is giving inspiration because it's real reparations globally. What's happening with HR 40, people in CARICOM, we have a synergistic, constructive and positive relationship with the CARICOM Reparations Commission. They looking, they're looking very carefully at what's happening in this country with HR 40 because it is giving inspiration to nations in the Caribbean, people in Central and South America and in Europe, people are watching what is happening here in these United States of America. We are that close. Now we know that given this, the current situation with the Senate, it, it's not, it won't go through the Senate. So we could, we could have a, a moral victory and, and, and it would be a great victory, but we really want to get this commission going. So it is more likely that it will actually be uh, by executive order with President Biden having made the commitment at the convention of the National Action Network some years ago uh, in 16, in 19, uh, in 2016, the presidential candidates, as you know, were tripping over themselves saying HR 40, reparations, whatever, which again reflects that black voters matter, that the power that we exercise was finally being recognized around an issue that was seemingly controversial or that was marginal, that is no longer so. It is in the mainstream of discourse and debate. So a lot of people are trying to figure out, oh, am I going to get a check? When am I going to get a check? Who should get the check? <laughs> We're getting involved in some of that now, which we have to also deal with. 
But the point is to your audience, we are standing on the prefaces of a huge victory. But that victory with the enactment of H.R. 40 will also mean that it's an interim step because then we have to continue to organize and organize and organize to make sure that the, the proposals, that's why we have the NARC 10 point program that you represent, the 10 point reparations program as a frame of reference. This is what reparations could look like. And to use that, to organize around that so that we really, really move uh, positively to get reparations movement. And, and I have to say this, reparations is really not about the status quo. Reparations is about, when you go through the UN definitions, it's about non-repetition. It's about that making. That was, you it, know, that's the last point I always deliver. Yeah, is I mean, that it, the commitment to not do the harm again? Right, but the commitment that commitment is one that has to be backed by action. In other words, our struggle has to make sure that we create structures that are inherently inherently reparative, which means that we're 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 going to be where Martin Luther King was, and where people forget because this country wants us to forget. So when you go to the monument, I was speaking somewhere the other day, <clears throat> you go to the monument, uh, actually it was at Riverside Church. I had the privilege of being at Riverside Church, working with a brilliant brother, Pastor Michael McBride and uh, Tracy Blackman. And whoa, they, it was a tremendous experience uh, on the 55th anniversary of the delivery of Dr. Martin Luther King's 1967 Beyond Vietnam speech. And uh, I was asked to make some comments and I, I pointed to the fact, <clears throat> I always cite the section because you don't see it on the monument. You, you, see the, you see sort of a sanitized Martin Luther King when you go to the monument because he had lots of good things to say. But the more radical, rational, but radical things he had to say, you don't see. But King said in that speech, true compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes to understand that the edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring which means that he was talking about systemic change. He wasn't just talking about reform. He was recognizing the need for a radical overhaul of these United States of America. In fact, in that same speech, he says, we must have a revolution of values that moves us from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. I mean, so he was pushing in that direction. And that's what the repair of this, our repair, opens up the door for the repair of the entire American state so that we do not have the repetition of the kind of enslavement and the derivatives that harm literally millions of people in this country. That's really what's at stake. You know, I, I thought it was really important to bring someone like you to provide that context because quite often you know, social media is good for connecting us, but it's also people boil down arguments into who should get checks and how much should the checks be. And then the other argument, which, you know, I have to remind folks, there is what is owed to you because you are in this country, you are a citizen of the country and you have every right to enjoy every freedom. <clears throat> and it is not... So it, it reparations does not take the place of that, right? Of you, what you are owed of, of being here in this country, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a separate, <clears throat> and that's what we're talking about, that civic engagement stuff, right. right? And, you know, part of the reason why I started the show, why I teach, why I do this is because, you know, part of the organizing work is also convincing people that they are entitled, one, to participate in their own governance, and two, to be able to demand something of the entity that is governing them as well. Reparations is a part of that too. Absolutely, it's a part of it. But let me just go back because <clears throat> you struck on another very important note, which we have to also educate people about. Because in this moment, we don't want to throw, <clears throat> throw cold water or dampen the enthusiasm, <clears throat> excuse me, because it's very, it's incredible. But we also have to make distinctions as we move forward. So people just don't label reparations any and everything, even though, the any and everything is positive. So a part of the any and everything is equity policy. All of a sudden, equity is like the, the watchword of the day. That's good. Because what it means is, and COVID helped to, well, Katrina was, there's been so many times, but Katrina was certainly one of the instances when you saw these huge disparities between you know, black folks, people of African descent, and other people of color to some extent, but particularly black folks 
who were stranded, who didn't have transportation, who didn't have cars, who had no access, who had all kinds of difficulties. You know, middle-class black folk, yeah, and so, but there was, there was a disproportionate number of black, poor, and working people who could not escape. Therefore, they, they bore the brunt of, of the death and the destruction and the inability to, to really even recover from, uh, from, from Katrina. Similarly, COVID exposed that in terms of the comorbidities. And uh, by the way, which is a part of the uh, cross-generational, uh, intergenerational epigenetic uh, trauma, which is now being demonstrated by, by, by uh, science, that we are carrying both psychologically and physically in our genes across generations, the harm that has been done um, uh, to us. And so all of these, all of, all of these issues have to be have to be uh, teased out. So, so when you look at equity policy, what that says is we, from this point on, will apply a lens of trying to end disparities and making sure there's an equalization of the process moving forward. That has nothing to do with what has already happened. Reparations is that the damage that was done that has yet to be repaired. The second thing is ordinary public policy. People need some jobs right now. People need housing right now. People need healthcare right now. We need all of those things. I mean, getting reparations does not therefore mean that you you would not have issues that that you know, I mean, hopefully it helps. But you, in the in the quest to get reparations, we're not substituting what I call what we call ordinary or regular regular public policy for reparations. You're entitled. That we need millions of jobs for Black people right now. Millions millions of Black people need healthcare, need housing right now, and and so. Ordinary public policy is ordinary public policy. That is a good, we ought to be pushing for good public policy that's inclusive, that's targeted, that helps to, in fact, deal with the fact that black people are still, at, at, you know, even though unemployment is, is, is lower, it is always twice uh, as high for black people as it is uh, for, for uh, at least white folks, at least. Um, uh, and indeed, when you look at other areas and other indicators, we also lag behind in terms of average income and wealth gap and those kind of things. So equity policy is good and ordinary public policy is good, but reparations is its own distinct category. And that category is again for enslavement, all of the derivatives from it, including Jim Crow segregation and all of those areas. Um, and one of the most important things about it too is when people get the Holy Ghost and wake up and say, oh, I understand now what happened and I want to give you this. We say, oh, no, 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 no. If you gave, if you were, you were responsible for the injury, you cannot define the remedy. Those who are harmed have to define what the remedy must be. And we must have independent capacity to administer resources that are dispensed that we agree to. So there's so much that is going on that is so positive. The last thing I wanna say about the civic engagement, people have gotta understand the critical value of civic engagement. Civic engagement by understanding the nature of how politics works. In this country, it's a democracy, yes, but it is a democracy from the beginning that was intended to be democracy for the few. It is only through people struggling you know, and battling and opening it up for uh, 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 knocking out the property, uh, uh, property uh, requirements, making sure that women can vote at every stage. Black, I mean, it's been a struggle. But they really talk about uh, democracy and voting as the cornerstone of it while also trying to restrict it and make it more difficult. And also, you know, voting in America is harder than anywhere else in the world. You got to go through all these loops and hoops to do that, which is a fundamental right and should be a, not a privilege, a right in the society. But here's the bottom line. As a result of how the society functions, the biggest political party in America today is not the Democrats, it's not the Republicans, it's non-voters. And, and if you go in, in a, an election like the last election, probably maybe... 58 to 60%, I'm going to guess, and I'll be very close in that approximation, of the total eligible electorate in America actually voted. And people like, that's like, whoa, that's huge. Yeah, it's huge in America. It's like nothing if you go to Canada where 80% of the people are voting, 85, 90% of the people are voting in France, Italy, and other places. America has the lowest level of voter participation of almost of any Western democracy. But here's what you can do if that's the case. 
Those who vote drive the process. So for black people, understand that there's huge numbers of white people who are not voting. If we vote, we have power disproportionate to our numbers. And that's one of the things that we have to understand now as we're moving forward in this period of great danger while simultaneously America is being driven in a positive sense towards this racial reckoning. While on the simultaneously, you have some other folks who are trying to turn back the clock, white masses, white supremacists, uh, who are outright trying to, in fact, subvert democracy. They're energized. They are going to vote because they're voting to maintain white supremacy. We have to be equally motivated. And we have to say, we don't care how many voter restrictions they put down. If they put the voting polling booth in the middle of the desert, we are saying, ain't nobody going to turn us around because we are coming. Because we understand that when we vote, we lead the way. So we should always be registering, educating, engaging Black people, not just to vote. We need to be involved in demonstrations. We need to be involved in civic, uh, going to school board meetings and participating in the community and all those kind of things. Economic sanctions, boycotts, all of those things matter. But voting also matters. And in this critical election coming up, we are going to be the ones that reject it. So look at what happened in Georgia. In Georgia, where my folk, my, my family, my father comes from Georgia. Uh, you know, and, 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 and so what you see in Georgia, who would have thought that in Georgia, it was the rejected stones who really turned out and showed up and showed out, as the, the by nine would say, to make sure that the first black person from that state was elected to the Senate of the United States of America and the first Jewish person was elected from the, uh, from the state of Georgia. That's who we are when we exercise that civic engagement that you're pushing and, and getting people to understand. That's what at stake. And that's why what you're doing, Joy, is so joyful and so celebratory and so necessary. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for, for blessing me and for blessing our listeners. I certainly love to have you. And thank you so very much for that education. And as you mentioned, it's, it's ongoing, right, as we go through this process in terms of what our next steps are. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, and we'd, we'd love to have you back again. Well, it's soon. my privilege. I have to, as an organizer, say to, to follow the work that we're doing, go to the website. I am the president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and convener of the National African American Reparations Commission. So go to the website, ibw21.org, ibw21.org. And the folk is trying to educate me on my 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 social media stuff too. So I think it's uh, I think it's Ron Daniels at Twitter and Ron Daniels at Instagram. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm trying to learn. Joe, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to. I'm Listen, trying to that's, that's all you can do. <laughs> but thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Oh, it's cool.